Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, I'm Captain Chris, and I'd like to welcome you to the very first Speckled Truth podcast. Uh, truth be told, this has been a long time in the making, uh, but through the support of our families, friends, and you, the followers, it's finally reality. No doubt, over the course of this podcasting endeavor, things and formats will change, but we'll keep the focus and intent on trophy trout and conservation with all of our guests and topics. That being said, I'd like to welcome my first guest, my dad, Captain Charlie Bush. Pops, what's going on, buddy? Hey, buddy. How you doing tonight? I'm good, man. I'm good. How's everything in Louisiana and my hometown in New Orleans? Pretty hot right now. We almost set a record today. We had uh, a balmy 98 degrees. The best part is the weather's going to be good for the weekend for fishing. Are you going to go? No. Maybe Sunday. I say no, maybe Sunday. You know me, I can't resist. Yeah, you know, Saturdays are an out, you know, but uh, Sundays, I know you do like to go on Sundays, but I hey, do every now and then. Saturdays I got you. Yeah. Well, hey, so, you know, first off, bud, thanks for being the very first guest. And um, if we were going to do this endeavor, I didn't want to have anybody else start this other than you, right? Because you've been so integral as part of me and my fishing endeavor and kind of growing as an angler. Um, and so anything we do, we obviously have always done together. And so this is a new venture for us and a new adventure for Speckle Truth. And so what better way to kick it off than, than having old pops on, uh, on the podcast. So thanks for bearing with us, man. And, and, uh, but before I get too far uh, in terms of our conversation, because I know who you are, you're my dad, right? At least you have been for the last 38 years that I've been alive. And so, uh, but a lot of our followers and a lot of folks that are maybe new to the podcast uh, may not necessarily know who you are. So if you can just take a, a second and, and tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you, Chris. First, let me tell you, I'm really honored, uh, honored to be, be on the show. Uh, you know, I, I admire you. You're my idol now. That's um, crazy, man. It's true. I'm, I'm very proud of my children. Um, you know, I, I've actually been married for 50, 53 years. Uh, I married my high, my grammar school sweetheart, your mom. Yep. We went to grammar school together. We were married 53 years. We celebrated that that, uh, that anniversary last week. That's right, last week. Yep. And uh, I'm 73 years of old, age. Um, we have three children, uh, Michelle, the oldest, Kerry, your older brother, and you, the baby, of course. Yeah, about um, 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. You were surprised. <laughs> a pleasant surprise, I might add, but that's awesome. I'm actually a retired automotive mechanic. That's what I did um, to make a living, support our family. I fixed cars for a living for a long time, and I really enjoyed it. I was always blessed to be able to work with my hands, so that was a blessing. You know, when I asked your mom to marry me 53 years ago, I, I asked her one thing. I said, honey, I said, you got to take me for what I am, but I said, I've got three three ideals in my life, and my family motto wanted to be these three things, if you want to marry me. I said, we have to keep God first, 
family second, and fishing third in my in our lives, and you got to stay in that order. It's funny you mention that because uh, for those again that are are kind of new, maybe to us, uh, obviously to me and you and our and our dyna- our dynamic. Excuse me. Um, when I was growing up, that's what you always preach. So, the, I mean, you're not just saying that as a result of this podcast. I mean, nope. that's something that you truly had in, in terms of our core values of our family, right? Of, of God, family, and fishing. And it's funny because as a 38-year-old uh, man, married now 11 years with, with three kids, three boys, um, we, we still live by that same motto. And it's funny because, you know, now looking back, and kind of reflecting a little bit more, um, I didn't quite realize maybe how much fishing was a part of our life. And it, it really is a fig, like it's a fixture of our family. I mean, I, it's almost to the point where it's an actual sibling to some extent. Mom could probably attest uh, as well as Carrie and me, me, but no, I mean, it's not lip service. That is definitely uh, the core values that you've set forth. And uh, I appreciate it one, cause I like to fish and obviously that started with you. Uh, but that is, that's something that's transcended not only to your immediate family, my, my brother and my sister, but to our family, uh, or into your grandkids and, and to your kids. Uh, so yeah, thanks for that, buddy. And, and, uh, yeah, thank you for that and, and growing me up or at least raising me in that household. Right both you and mom, that's, that's a huge part of who I am as a person, uh, part of, of kind of the work ethic that we have. And in terms of problem solving, it's funny how much fishing will teach you in terms of the intangibles, but, um, it, it's funny. It's just those core values and, and how they've been such a figment in, in our, in our lives. So, Hey, uh, you know, as we, as we transition a little bit, so, Obviously, you're on this podcast because you enjoy fishing. So who introduced you to the sport of fishing and about how old were you? Well, actually, you know, uh, your grandfather, uh, my dad, um, never had a boat. And uh, I, I just uh, love to watch people fish all the time. And, and dad knew that. And so when he would, he would, he loved to fish and, and he had friends that had a boat. So he would he would ask him, he said, look, would you mind if my son would tag along? About how old were you then? Oh, I was about eight, seven or eight years old. I remember, I remember the first trip he took me on. You know, we went, uh, it was freezing cold. I remember shivering to death. They pop, shoved me underneath the bow of the boat. We rode uh, somewhere, I couldn't tell you. I was seven or eight years old. But anyway, we wound up fishing for sheephead and, <laughs> uh, against some piling someplace. But yeah. you know what? I was hooked. Just that, mm-hmm. that moment on, I was hooked. It was the thought, the thrill of being out in the open water that just it lured me, and I couldn't get enough of it. The irony there is that it started with sheephead, right? In- it started with sheephead. Yeah, it's <laughs> all fish of sheephead with a piece of shrimp and a hook, a bad hook, just floating it down against some pylons, catching sheephead. But it was fun. It was fun. And so I know this, but I mean... Wherever that was, was that in Cocodry? Now looking back, do you know? No, no, it was someplace out of Delacro, from what I remember. Um, oh. And it was a dead end canal, and it had some pylons. We went from dead end canal to dead end canal, looking yeah. for pylons. Obviously, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's that's how we fish them. I and I remember it was freezing cold, and I was shivering to death, and I wouldn't say a word because I I, I didn't want them to think I was a sissy, you know. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> for, yeah, I, I got you. But for, they knew I was cool. They showed me underneath the bow of the boat, keep me warm <laughs> when the boat was moving. So that was nice. That's funny. They call like child protective services now for doing yeah, that. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's funny. But uh, so having caught Sheep's Head uh, in an undisclosed location in South Louisiana, uh, do you remember catching your actual first trout? You know, I really do. And it's ironical you say that. I was thinking, I was reflecting on that today. And uh, my uh, my uncle invited my dad, my dad's brother invited us on his boat. And uh, he used to fish out of, or stricker. We used to drive down to Buras 90 miles an hour, get down to Buras, launch in the river, go through the locks or stricker locks, and then fish the rigs out in Breton Sound. Well, they love to, to fish. Now we're talking, you know, 50 years ago. We're talking longer than 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, we're talking they would love to catch a box of white trout and bull croakers. And they were bottom fish, you know. I hated it. Right. But I, What were y'all fishing with? Well, they would fish with, they would fish with uh, 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 double rigs with shrimp and hook mm-hmm. and a big old weight. Sit, sit on the bottom, just like Carolina rigging it on the bottom. And uh-huh. catching two tr- two white trout at a time and two bull croakers at a time, and it was all about the meat. Well, they were on the back of the boat and they're fishing on the bottom. Well, on the way out there, I happened to see some guys surf fishing at Hog Island. Now you never knew what Hog. I don't think you ever knew where Hog nope. Island was, but it wasn't far from from uh, Stone Island where we fished at. You and I fished yeah, at, at Delacro. Yep. Yeah, it was a big shell reef. When you come through the, the uh, strick of locks, you couldn't miss it. You had to go around. It was a big shell reef. They had some guys there surf fishing. And, uh, man, I saw those guys surf fishing. I said, boy, I want to do this. I want to get out of this boat and get in that water with those guys more than anything. So I suggested to my dad and my uncle, and they said, they laughed at me. Oh, no, we're going. <laughs> so I get out to the rigs. And so the second time I went with them, I had my spinner rod, and I put a sidewinder on, which was just a chrome. It was yeah. a chrome bait, you know, with a little flash in it with a bucktail. And I caught my first speckled trout at the rig. Well, their eyes got big as saucers when I caught that speckled trout, you know? <laughs> did you ever go, did you ever go wade fish Hog Island? No, never did. They would never go there. They would never take me. And, you know, at the time I was too young. I mean, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, you were along for the yeah, ride. Yeah, I was right at eight, that point. nine years old along for the ride, you know, but that was, <laughs> that was awesome. the first time I caught my trout and I was hooked. Because it was different. I, I didn't want the nuance of just bottom fishing. It was boring to me, you know. There was no trickery involved. You know what I'm saying? So, so what, what was the like the what was it about that trout, or or what was it about? Yeah, what, what were some like of the characteristics? Do you remember that? Like any characteristics, like the notorious head shake or something along those lines from that particular trout, or well, you know, that trip? yeah, you know, we were fishing about ten feet of water, and I probably caught him probably close to the bottom, maybe three or four feet off the bottom. And it, the head shake that I felt on that trout, it was so mm-hmm. different because it wasn't just like reeling up a log. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. so when he got yeah. to the t- top of the water and he saw that a head shake, I was so excited as a young kid. I was just so excited. And I, I got him in a boat. And, it, and to see the reaction on their face was priceless. I, that is yeah. indebted in my mind forever. You know, going back, looking at that. So did did Papa, 
after you caught that trout or after y'all went, did, is that something y'all started to target a little bit more nope. or was that something? No, no he was just no, Pop, pure meat. Papa huh? never did fish trout until we, until we, we, he bought a camp. He retired and um, mm-hmm. I don't remember the year, but he retired and he bought a camp in Cocodry. And so um, it was right about a year after mom and I got married, I think, or maybe a couple of years after mom and I got married, he bought a camp in Cocodry and retired. And so he used to take, your grandmother, him and I, him and her used to go for the week and they'd go down there and they'd fish Monday through Friday and come back on the weekends. And he started trout fishing. That's when he started trout fishing. Mm-hmm. So we fixed the structures out of Bay St. Lane and all those little reefs out there. And he yeah. was, you know, he, he got accustomed to trout fishing. But Papa had one way of fishing, one way only. It was a cork and a shad rig and that was it. That's all he knew. That's mm-hmm. all he wanted to know. It put fish in a box yeah. and he was happy with that, you know. So Yeah, so, I mean, but... You know, thinking back to, you know, my young life in terms of fishing the Mississippi Delta and, and for everybody listening, we fished, we, I classify our home waters or my home waters really is Port Sulphur, Louisiana. And so, right. uh, but we fished everywhere pops, right? We fished everything from Shelby, actually really Pontchartrain all the way to uh, Cocodri or, or, or Fouchon and, and, and Timbalier and those areas, right? So, I mean- yeah. The Delta was our oyster. Yeah. Well, you got to remember but now, you it? were the baby. You were 10 years. It was 10 years between uh-huh. your older brother. And you know, when my, after mom and I got married, uh, we fished. Um, I, I fished. I had a little 12, 14-foot flat boat. I put it in the back of my pickup truck with my P-Rog, and I would go down to Buras, and I'd put it in Boothville and put it in over the levee, put it in by myself. I had a little motor that I carried, a little five and a half, hooked it on the back. And I'd go out and I'd cast and blast out of Boothville. Well, I had Bayou Karen Crow right mm-hmm. there. Well, it was all open land. So I would go out Bayou Karen Crow and, and, and hunt, duck hunt in those ponds. And then when I, after I shot my ducks, my limits, I would fish in those ponds. I didn't catch bass and I'd catch yeah. redfish. Yeah. So it was, it was a perfect venue for me by myself. I was a loner. I always was a loner. But I'd go down in and I'd draw that, that's that's how I grew up after we were married. So I did that yeah. and I brought your brother, your older brother. He he was into it. So he and I, you know, would go all the time. Well, what happened was, you know, he obviously went away to college and I kind of lost interest because I didn't have my fishing buddy with me anymore. You know, yeah. so at that time. I told mom, I said, look, I'm sell a boat, the little boat that we have. And I said, we, we did something entirely different. You know, we had gotten a piece of property in Mississippi, a little farm in Mississippi with a little pond on it. Well, yeah. lo and behold, you came along. Well, God blessed us with a son that just loved to live in that freaking pond. I mean, you couldn't get enough of that pond. The minute we got to Mississippi, you dove in the pond. One day on the way home, your mom said, Charlie, you got to go buy another boat. That boy loves to fish too much. You got to go buy a boat. And she insisted on me going to buy another boat. So the next day I started looking in the paper and I found the get the net. Get the net, baby. The get the net. Remember to get the net? Oh, I remember to get the net, man. That was a... That was the boat, right? I mean, as a, what, a, I was probably, what, in fifth grade? Fourth that's fifth right. Grade. Fourth, fifth grade, that's right. When, yeah, when we got that's get right. the net. And uh, it was a, what, a 16-foot weld that's craft, correct. right? With a 35? That's correct. 
A 35. And a 35, yeah. brand new 35 on it. But that the first trip you and I went, we went all the way to um, the Breton Sound and out of Delacro. And we almost ran out of gas. We got out, got out <laughs> the Black Bay. And I said, Chris, we're almost out of gas. We got to go back. Well, hey, I will say this, though. So we, we fished around Mozambique Point right out of Barrett's uh, Buffs, right. right? And we ended up catching quite a few trout. And, and I remember, I didn't really maybe understand the gravity of the situation, but we were probably halfway <laughs> back. And I think we had a six-gallon tank, and you kept lifting the gas tank. <laughs> kept lifting the gas tank <laughs> to make sure we had enough gas. And I remember you like just kind of staying quiet. <laughs> uh, maybe just didn't understand how close we were to running out of gas. But I remember that trip, man, very vividly. You know what I remember about the trip most is the fact that I bought 100 live shrimp. And you know what? We threw no. 99 overboard because the fish we caught, we caught on plastic. You remember that? That wasn't, but that wasn't that trip. I will say that. Uh, uh, I know you're 73 years old now and and the memory may be getting a fade, but no, I'll say, (laughs) I will say though, that wasn't that trip. That trip, I actually wrote about it. Dude, it's funny because those types of trips uh, infuse you or or like just make this like indelible mark on your life. And that was one of those trips. That's when we we finally actually had the 75. Remember, you went from the oh, yeah. 35, we upgraded to a 75 Yamaha yeah. two-stroke. And man, we were, that's when you put the decking yeah. on a boat and everything. I mean, that thing was pimped out. And so that's when we actually headed out to, and we fished around Snake Island. And this is in a Delacro Basin in Louisiana, for those not familiar right. with that Stone area. But this is, yep. uh, so, Stone, so we go to Stone Island, we go to Snake Island, we bought 100 live shrimp from Serenades. And- we finally pulled up. It was a calm enough day. We ran all the way to Iron Banks, man. And that was like unheard of to run <laughs> yeah. from that far to boat. Iron Banks in a 16-foot yeah. little flatboat. And I remember we pulled up. And so we started fishing. And uh, yeah, we I, I, we were throwing a cork and shrimp. And all of a sudden, we caught it, like started catching hardheads. And I, I, I had the Abu Garcia 5600CI on an Abu black max that was a first bait caster of our own and i i, I put on a h and h kakahota you know generic uh jig head and cast it out there caught a trout and i think you followed suit and we ended up catching yep. 50 trout and that was that was the day that was the day we came back with like 70 live shrimp and not all and i still tell this story actually in a cca banquets i've been a, been able to speak at I've, i still tell that story because it left such an impression on I think that's a day we actually went artificial that's only it. for the rest of that our That was the day careers. that changed my life forever. That was. That, that was. It was. Yeah. yeah what, what, so uh, not to belabor the point, but I mean, what, what were other uh, trips that you felt? I mean, we've had, dude, look, we've had a lot of memorable trips. What was one that really stood out to you? Honestly, um, you know, the one that, that I think about probably there's two there's actually two trips that that stand out in my mind above all all others the first one was with your older brother Kerry. Mm-hmm. we uh, you know I, I fished the west side the barataria basin a lot and so we i used to fish out of mm-hmm. empire and we went to this place called uh, english bayou and it was a big oyster mm-hmm. reef and uh, your brother and i sat on this oyster reef and caught over 60 reds in a couple hours we had we had reds everywhere, and you know, 
as we would catch him, we would throw him back. And I remember we came home and mom said, well, where's the fish? And your brother said, well, mom, we threw them all back. And I remember that like it was yesterday because we had such a great time. It was a memory that stands out of my mind. We caught a lot of fish, but we didn't need to bring any home. It was just so much fun being together and enjoying the great outdoors together and the time we spent. That was the first one. And the second one that stands out in my mind is fairly recent, actually. You know, I've had so many great trips of of great catches with great folks and a lot of people that I've taken with. But the one that stands out in my mind, I think second was the one that you and I made uh, this, this past year. You know, I caught the fish of my lifetime to me was the biggest fish I ever caught. I caught a 27 inch fish, but that wasn't a story. It was a, it was a story that you and I spent that time on a foggy morning together, wade fishing on a flat, that shared a lot of memories, a lot of a lot of old stories, and that the relationship that we had on the water meant so much to me. You know, the fish mm-hmm. was coupe de gras, but but yep. I still have nightmares about the one I lost. <laughs> you know, I tell you that all the time. Yeah. I said that fish that got Amen. away was bigger than that twenty-seven that I landed. You know. Yeah, well, live long enough, brother, and come down well, with me this winter. And, God uh, willing, I'll be there. You let's know get that. Revenge on her, dude. I, so I tell that story as well, uh, just because it. I, I mean, I've told it on Salt Strong's podcast, uh, you know, and I shared that actually in, in my CCA talks as well, just because I think that was the time for me that I, I saw maybe I maybe truly felt it and understood that the tide change a little, you'll always be my dad. You'll always be my fishing mentor. You'll always kind of be that in my life. But that was, I felt like that was the day you kind of passed the torch where I was the one who was for lack of better terms, teaching you how to fish, you know, or, 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 or taking care of, of you, like you've done for me, obviously throughout the course of my life and angling career, you know? And so I felt like that was a, that was a, a very special moment for me. Uh, but one that actually sticks out, you know, uh, thinking as you're talking about it, you know, fishing the west side of the river was actually Myrtle Grove. Uh, we fished Myrtle Grove a lot. Remember Absolutely. I, I'd wait for you to get off the school bus and have the boat loaded and ready to go. And you get off the school bus, we'd yep. hop in a truck and go to Myrtle Grove and fish the afternoon. We did it on many occasions. Where would we fish? Oh, we fished Bay Round, Bay Five, Bay L'Oreal. There you go, huh? Bay Round, that north side of Bay Round in the fall time frame, it was something about like the aroma. It was something about like the air, everything, like everything stands out to me in that particular instance. And fishing those north side of Bay Round grass flats when they actually had it is really lush with grass. I think it still is now that Carnarvon's open, but throwing those H&H uh, sparking beetles. Oh, absolutely. That? And that is in my mind forever. And, and those... Those trips and, and even ma- the one that really truly in- stands out was when we, we woke up one morning on Athania, we had the boat kind of loaded and it was a game time decision. We saw the front. It was like right in Alexandria <laughs> and you were like, we got like two hours and I was like, all right, let's go. And so, yeah, we, we went down there and sure enough, man, we caught 50 trout real quick. Uh, and as we're back, going back up Wilkinson Canal, you could see the line. I mean, you could see it go from cloudy to just wind blowing out the north real hard, getting cold, and and we timed it just right, man. And we had so many of those days, yep. Pop. So 
those are the ones that really stand out to me. But anyway, but you, so you kind of alluded to it a little bit, like, you know, going with Carrie and throwing those redfish back. So recently, you know, tell people about your endeavors with Tag Louisiana and, and kind of what you've been doing there. Well, honestly, uh, Chris, you know, I retired. Uh, I worked so many years uh, fixing cars and then, then I went and worked down at a church down in the French Quarter for quite some time doing construction work and and recently retired as uh, at a, uh, a custodian at the school across the river. You know, things I loved. I love working with, with, with children. And uh, mm-hmm. so I love being able to teach children. And so uh, after I retired, I made my bucket list, you know. Um, there was a couple things on my uh-huh. bucket list that I wanted to do. And I told your mom, I said, these are some of the things that I really wanted to do we've never done. First thing we did, mom and I took two weeks, no frills, and just went and traveled and saw the good old United States, spent some time together, reminisced, and reestablished ourselves as husband and wife. That was very important in our life. And then, you know, during that time, uh, you had had gone and got your captain's license. I remember that. So I was I was kind of envious, I'll be quite honest. I said, that kid, he I'm so proud of him, he went and got his captain's license. <laughs> And so mom said, well, why don't you go get yours? I said, hi, been in school in 40 something years. How am I passing that test? <laughs> so you encouraged me to do it. And I did. And I went and got my captain's license. And then I started this, um, this website called Tagging Memories. I'll never forget it. Because I wanted to teach children how to fish. Well, unfortunately, with all the pedophilia that's going on and, and things. It just didn't work out the way I really wanted to plan because, you know, you have to get children one-on-one to teach them. So as an alternative plan, I saw that Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries had uh, aquatic instructor program. So uh, I went and took the course and became an aquatic instructor. Well, that allowed me to go to different schools to teach children what I had learned in my 50 years of fishing. 60 years of fishing. So I was able to pass that on. So in the meantime, Tag Louisiana came along and was, was prominent and, and, and and somebody had mentioned it to me. He said, why don't you, why don't you start tagging fish? And, and if you remember correctly, you and I were fishing in, in, in Bay Cray, I think it was Bay Cray. And we had caught a tag redfish. Now this was Oh, many. Remember that? Years and years and years ago. I said, you know, I think this is something I'd like to do because, you, you know, you just can't keep all the fish you catch. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I said, well, I'm going to join the Tag Louisiana program. So I did. I got to meet some wonderful folks on the water. Other people were tagging. And um, the first year they had their banquet, we had a, we had a small crowd of people, small crowd of folks, um, maybe 25, 30 people had, were invited to the banquet by Louisiana Life and Fisheries. And uh, I had tagged about 50 or 60 fish. And so they recognized that you tagged 50 or 60 fish, which is pretty good. So I said, well, next year, I'm going to catch more than that. So every year, I had to up the ante. You know, you had to catch a few more because it was it was fun. It became yeah. fun. And, and, and on the water, I met other guys that were tagging. Like uh, they had a they had the yeah. guy that I to this day, Dr. Tedesco, he really is an idol for me. The guy fishes out of Grand Isle. He fishes with a fly rod. 
and he tags, he's tagged well over 10,000 fish. Most of them caught in a flower rod, which I just truly admire. The guy's a phenomenal fisherman. That's It is. That's crazy. But he is a phenomenal fisherman. So every year, you know, the ante was up. So the four or five years that I participated in, in uh, Tag Louisiana was just a wonderful time. And uh, it was a challenge for me to increase every year to tag a few more fish. And then not only that, I felt as though, hey, this information was is so valuable because we're, we're gaining information about something, a fish, a species that I truly love. There's something about those trout you just can't get enough of. So the more I caught, the more I wanted to catch and the more I wanted to tag. And, you know, I had the perfect boat for it at the time. I had that little yellowfin. We had a huge live well, and I could put 25, 30 trout in there and keep them alive and tag them all up at one time. So it was perfect. You went from tagging, so don't undersell it here. I mean, because it's quite the accomplishment. And actually, that's really a, a question I'll have in a second is, is that your proudest accomplishment? But to put it in perspective, uh, you went from tagging like 50 or 60 fish to then tagging like 1,200 trout to then tagging what like 2000 trout and then ultimately like 3500 trout in a year these are all yearly uh value so if i did the math right per your trip count it actually worked out to like four you were averaging dad this is this is ridiculous but you were averaging 43 trout per trip that's by yourself that's about right that's that's unheard of man that's insane but so as a result of that, you won uh, the tag or the top tagger in the state. What years were that? You would have to ask me that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it I, would. Think it was, I think it was uh, uh, 15, 16, and 17, maybe. Okay. So, yeah, three basically three straight years in, in terms of the top tagger in the state. And so, is that your proudest accomplishment no. as an angler? What is? Honestly, honestly, my. My proudest accomplishment is is being able to teach young people, to to teach young people the sport that I love so much. I have to say that Mm. that's my proudest accomplishment of, of being with the young people and watching the glow on their face when they catch their first fish and when they release that fish. Yeah. To me, I'm passed on something that I instilled in you and I'm passing on to the other young people to be. Mm-hmm. That's something I'm kind of proud of. You know, it, it touches my heart. Yeah. It really does because I'm sorry. No, you okay, buddy. You know, I treasure our resource. I, I think we're so blessed we're blessed more in Louisiana than we realize that we have such a valuable resource and we take it for granted. I, I think all too often that we, we don't stop and smell the roses, you know? And mm-hmm. if we don't teach our young people, our children, spend time with them, then where are we headed? Where are we headed? And teach them the values of a resource, right? I mean, just like you, and and it's forged me as a person being on the Delta, right? And growing up in that environment, 
you know, getting lost. You, I mean, shoot, I was, I had my own boat before I had my own driver's license, you know, and I mean, I know not every <laughs> childhood situation yeah, true. is that way, but, but I, I consider myself obviously extremely blessed and lucky, but what better way and what better place to grow up than just getting lost in a, in a natural wild resource and taking it all in. That's why forever till, I mean, I've fished a myriad of different estuaries it still goes back to the, just a pure love for the Louisiana Delta because it's been so paramount to me as a person, you know, and, and that's, I see where you're, I see what you're talking about. You know, if you teach people that, if you get them in, instilled in that and get them to understand that at an early age, man, you have forged that person as a member of society, right. As a person and it, they just, we take that for granted, like you're saying, especially in Louisiana, because instead of this mentality, this blinder mentality of just going to catch a limit of trout, and that's the only reason we we launch a boat, we have completely missed the mark. So uh, thank you for sharing that, man. Uh, thank you. For- yeah, I, th- I think th- a lot of it boils down to respect, too. If we don't respect what, what, what God has entrusted to us, you know, our resource and, and what we have, then it, that also transpires in a life, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and it, it, it forms us as people, yeah. as a society. Yeah. I got you, man. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that boss. Hey everyone. I'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors. As you know, we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout as well as our conservation. Fortunately for us, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky support that same passion, which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this will be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. You know, obviously we have a lot going on in uh, Louisiana right now with regards to the speckled trout stock assessment. Um, wh- what's your take on that? Well, um, let me say this. Um, I worked with, with, uh, as a volunteer with Wildlife and Fisheries for, for several years now. And I will say this. Those people are the most dedicated employees I have ever worked with in my entire life. These folks have massive degrees in what they do. They're knowledgeable. They're dedicated. They spend a lot of time on the water. They spend more time than they actually get paid for, and they get paid peanuts. But I'm going to tell you, they do what they do because they love it. Whatever they come out with, as far as stock assessment goes, I could live Believe with it. Right? My, pers- my personal take is I have to use common sense. If I look at where we've been and where we're going with the land loss that we've lost, it only it only leads to the fact that we're going to have to make some changes. You know, life life's different than it was 40, 50, 60 years ago, like we were talking about a few minutes ago. It's changed. And so if we want to keep what we have, we want to improve what we have for our future generations, then we've got to make some changes. Use your, use common sense. The land loss is, the land loss is incredible. 
And, and even if we sought it tomorrow and we started filling in, we could never replace what we've lost. And it's going to have an effect on our resource. Just common sense tells me that. Yeah. So do you, simple question, right? I mean, do you think the fishing personally as an angler, right? As a dude who has no scientific background, et cetera, but you're on the water a lot. I mean, you fish a hundred days a year plus, I mean, as a 73 year old man, that's a lot. Uh, but do you feel over the course of your tenure, right? In the Louisiana Delta, has it gotten better or has it gotten worse? Well, overall, it, it's really, it's, it's, it's on a decline. Now, let me say this. This year, I had one of the probably the best summers I've ever had fishing. But that's not an indication of the true, of the whole estuary. Because there's so many variables. You know, you and I talked about it the other day a little bit about the variables. You know, about the river, the river being high this year. Well, the east, you know, they had a horrible year of catching speckled trout in the east side. Delacroix and that whole area it was horrible because of the fresh water. Well, those fish are smart, and that's why I like fishing speckled trout, because they're smart. They're smart breed. They're going to move. It's time for them to migrate, to spawn, to reproduce. they got to have that salinity, so they're going to move. So I happened to be in an area that had high salinity. Therefore, I had, I had a great production. But overall, I think the stock assessment is going to show that we're down, and, and I find that, the, that we're not catching the big trout like we used to catch. Now, you see, you see these posts all the time on Facebook about these wonderful catches and these dock shots. That's not an indication of the average Joe, you know. It really isn't. And I think if you talk to the average guy that's on the water that goes out on the weekend and takes his family, he's going to tell you the same thing that it has. It's not as good as it was. I don't even. Here's the deal, though: is I don't even necessarily think it's the average Joe that's saying that now, right? I think it's. A good portion of the guide fleet. I think it's uh, people like me and you that have have grown up fishing there and have had a lot a lot of success in the estuary, but just have seen something a little different, you know. And so, yeah, we're talking about the average Joe that fishes, you know, three times a year. We're not talking about that guy. I think where it really kind of ho- rings true is a guy who's fished a lot in his life and has had a ton of success. Uh, then kind of saying, Hey, things aren't right here. And, and even some of the guide fleet. And so I just asked you that because yeah, again, you fished across the span of decades, right? Decades within the Louisiana estuary, you've seen bays, you've seen shorelines that I've never seen even in my youngest time on the water. Right. And so, um, there's definitely something to be said there with regards to the fishery. The average person, you know, as you, as you, as you said, um, throwing the water a couple times a year, maybe maybe a dozen times a year. When you're on the water every week, like I am, or a couple times a week, and you see land disappearing from week to week, yeah. you know, that's the impact that I see was here today and going tomorrow. It happens. It's happening before my very eyes. Yeah. So something's got to change. Something's got to give. It, it just... it. It can't continue to where we're going, and yeah. fishing is definitely, firstly, is is got to suffer. Yeah, it's got to be on the decline. Yeah. So, I mean, with that, with all the adversity that is going on, I mean, are, and I mean, you see some efforts going on out there. Are you are you saddened by the state of the fishery? Or are you inspired by its future? 
Well, I think, I think I'm inspired in one respect because we recognize that we have a problem and that we're going to do something about it. And I think the first thing in anything is realize to look deep in your own soul and say, look, and admit like an alcoholic, I've got a problem. I got to deal with it. I got to do something about it. You know? And I think we as Louisianans realize that finally we got a problem. Let's do something about it. And so we're trying to make these final steps. So I think we're finally starting to make some headway to make some, make some positive steps. So I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, that's good. That's really good to hear. So I I have one question and to kind of bring it to more of a lighter note, to bring it more to a, a little bit of a lighter note, um, all the, all the information, right. All the trout that you've tagged in the tag Louisiana program, which is over 12,000, right? Uh, uh-huh. what recapture or recaptures, uh, stand out to you the most? Um, I had a trout that, that traveled was on, was, that was recaptured, um, two years after I tagged it. That's the longest one I had. It was over two years. So we're looking at uh, almost 500 days, close to two years, 500 days on the water. It had grown four inches, but it had traveled over a hundred and some odd miles. It was recaptured. You were recaptured a hundred and some odd miles away. Do you remember where? It had actually caught, I had caught it on the West Bank and it was recaptured on the East Bank. Damn. So over in a Delacroix actuary? Yeah. 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 Uh, and on another note, we caught a redfish. You and I had, had tagged a redfish in Mississippi, and it had traveled 70-something miles and was caught in the Gulfport Harbor. No kidding. And in a matter of four months, grew like five inches. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. And so redfish don't surprise me, right? But the trout surprised me. Well, oh, you know, I have, several, I have several trout that traveled well over 200 miles. No kidding. That were recaptured. And what's interesting about trout, about, you know, there's so much data that, that could have been looked at when the program was, was going on that never was exploited. And, and I think I'm disappointed in that because there's so much information in the TAG program that, that could have been used. And I even talked to a lot of biologists about it. I said, yeah, we're only tapping the surface. We could have got into the particulars about the size of the trout that were recaptured, you know. I noticed from my own observations that the trout that I recaptured, I recap- had a recapture rate of about 3%, but that 3% was on fairly large trout. And because I say large trout, I'm talking about lot in Louisiana, 15 to 17 inch trout had about a good 3% recapture rate. The smaller trout was slightly, slightly lower on the ones that I had tagged, you know, but the larger trout were more, more subjective to, to living a little bit longer, you know, and be recaptured. Um, a lot of trout were caught, a lot of them were recaptured within days of, of when they were tagged. So I had a lot of recaptures within three or four days within, within a 10-mile radius of where they were tagged, which is interesting. But there's so much data mm-hmm. that could have been used that wasn't used. And I know I always take some money. I understand that, you know, the bottom line. Um, but... It, it, I just think it was it was a it, it's something that was lost. That, yeah. that, especially when we had so many volunteers, we had so many so many tag Louisiana volunteers. The last bank we went to, we had over 100 people who were volunteering their time and money yeah. to tag these fish. You know, and, and but to, anyway, and that's somewhat of the disheartening part, right? Is that Louisiana, which has such a catch and keep mentality, 
you infuse this program or you start this program really from nothing. Right. And then all of a sudden it grows in momentum. And all of a sudden you get a lot of Louisiana anglers with their Louisiana mindset uh, now wanting to be participants in the program and taking what they need and release the rest. Right. We talk about that throughout all of the things we talk about with speckled truth is just simply taking what you need and release the rest, but it gave them an alternative to keeping everything. And yet when you, you know, debunk the program, it's kind of unfortunate. So, um, but so I remember Todd Masson though, he wrote an article where you caught what two or three trout in the same spot that you actually tagged them. Exactly. I sure did. Uh, two weeks after I tagged him, I caught him in the same spot. So what's your theory there behind that? So like if you were looking at that data set, what would that tell you? Um, th- th- those trout were growing. They had a lot of, a lot of forage, a lot of, a lot of bait fish, a lot of fin fish. The area that mm-hmm. I was fishing at the time, a lot of finger mullet, those fish didn't move. They weren't going to leave that food source. Yeah. They were going to stay right on that food source. And, and that's exactly what I get from that, right? Is that, you know, they're creatures or, or, or creatures of comfort, right? And so you caught yep. that fish, you released that fish and he's like, well, I'm not moving. Uh, there's a ton of shrimp, fin fish I'm going to eat and grow. And I think if I remember right, that either both of the fish, I think grew an inch in a month. That's correct. It's crazy that, that a fish that is particularly known as being somewhat of a delicate species and won't survive handling and releasing and all that stuff, uh, actually will. And so again, we can't talk about it enough about just taking what you need, release the rest, but people that say catch and release doesn't necessarily work or it's doing more harm than good. I, I would quasi disagree there because there is a lot of good that is not only notional, but it's proven to work in a fishery. So anyway, well, thanks for sharing that, bud. So I have uh we're going to wrap it up. It's a, it's about 50 or so minutes into the podcast and I, I got a couple of kind of quick facts. I know we've been kind of on a more, a heavier note. So I want to lighten it up before we go ahead and, and, and I cut you loose before, that way you can actually go to sleep. <laughs> That's past my bedtime. <laughs> I got you, brother. But, uh, Hey, just some quick facts. So, um, favorite lore, favorite lore. If I had to pick one lore. Yeah, to, go for to it. To catch fish or my favorite lore? Uh, favorite lore to catch fish. To catch fish. Well, that would have to be. Catch trout. Yeah. I, well, that's all I fish for. I would, I would actually, my if I had to pick one lure to go out and put one lure in my tackle box, I would use a quarter ounce jig head and a green hornet. Green hornet matrix head. I tagged 150 trout one day on that one bait. That's crazy. That's it crazy. is. That is. Hey, what's the most? And this isn't one of those questions, but like, what's the most trout you've actually caught in a day by yourself tagging? 210. <laughs> 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 That's all I can do is laugh at that, right? That's ridiculous. Absurd. Oh. It's obs- it, it's obscene. Yeah. Oh my god, two hundred and ten, crazy. All right, I so bought, I, I bought four home for supper. Did you really? No, I because they were legal, or because the other ones they were? I didn't lie well. I got you. That was when you were on that string, man. What you tagged like thirty six hundred that first, that third or fourth yeah. year? Crazy, but uh. Right. All right, so uh, braid or mono? Oh, rubber band line, of course. <laughs> uh, and, and for those who don't know my pops, that's monofilament. Uh, what, 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 uh, do you have a certain preference? Uh, summertime, I will fish 17, and wintertime, I will step down to 12. 12. Uh, particular brand you like? Stren. 
Well, uh, just regular strand, strand, big game. What? Uh, strand. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, it's got it. uh, the certain strand that I use. Yes. I got you. Uh, lastly, uh, what, what rod and reel or what, what real brand do you prefer? Corrado. Corrado. Huh? Shimano Gap. Corrado. It's funny. Uh, we've thrown them all, right? We've thrown them all. I have, I have thrown pretty much all of them. Yeah. I got you, buddy. Well, Hey man, pops brother. Um, uh, well, first off, I can't wait to see you again, man. Uh, both you and mom, uh, I love you, dude. And so I, I cannot say thank you enough for for being on a podcast uh, obviously this is the first one uh and like i like i said before i'm not doing anything especially in a fishing world without my pops being first right because you you set it in motion and so like everything else we do where it's starting it's new and it's an initiative or whatever it is you're going to set it in motion with me man so i appreciate that buddy and i appreciate you being on a podcast tonight well i'm truly honored chris um honored Two things: number one, to be a be a father, to be a, be a good friend, and uh, I'm very proud of you. And I, I thank you. I'm truly honored to be uh, to be on on your on your podcast. I appreciate it, buddy. Well, dude, take care. Get some rest. Go fishing this weekend. Uh, and then for everybody else listening to the podcast, uh, I just can't say it enough. But uh, when you're going out there and enjoying that time in the water. Just go ahead and always consider taking what you need and releasing the rest. So until next time, guys, join us right here in the Speckled Truth Podcast, Tight Lines. Hey, everyone. I just want to say thanks again for joining us here at the Speckled Truth Podcast. Regardless of fishery and where you're joining us from, we really appreciate your followership and just tuning in tonight to listen to the stories uh, that make their pursuit of trophy trout so special. And so... Again, none of this happens without the support of our sponsors from Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky. Without your support, none of this is possible. So thanks again to them. We hope to see you next time here at the Speckle Truth Podcast. And we always want to leave you with this one tidbit. Always remember to take what you need and release the rest. God bless. Yeah.